Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Trump's Veteran Day speech on Saturday, in which he channeled Adolf Hitler in calling his enemies vermin, with his campaign spokesman vowing that, quote, their entire existence will be crushed when President Trump returns to the White House. Joining us to discuss Trump's charge as he praised foreign dictators in Russia, China, North Korea and Hungary that the enemy is within is Matthew Dalek, an historian and professor of political management at George Washington University's College of Professional Studies, the author of The Right Moment and Defenseless Under the Night. His latest book is Birch's, How the John Birch Society Radicalized the American Right. Then we'll examine the role of the mainstream media in treating Trump who was the leader of one of America's two major parties, with the normal binary equal and opposite media convention of so-called balance. Joining us is Will Bunch, who is an award-winning national opinion columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer, and he blogs at Attitude, that's spelled A-T-T-Y-T-O-O-D dot com. He's the author of The Burn Identity, A Search for Bernie Sanders and the New American Dream, and most recently, after the Ivory Tower Falls, How College Broke the American Dream and Blew Up Our Politics and How to Fix It. We'll discuss his latest articles at the Philadelphia Inquirer, U.S. 2025 Dictatorship Threat Just Got Real, and As the World Burns, A Cowardly News Media Endangers U.S. Democracy. Then finally, we'll speak with Bennett Randberg, who was a foreign policy analyst in the Bureau of Politico-Military Affairs at the State Department during the George H.W. Bush administration. He's the author of Nuclear Power Plants as Weapons for the Enemy and Unrecognized Military Peril. And we will discuss his article at Project Syndicate, Preparing for a Russian Nuclear Meltdown. And before we begin, Background Briefing's mission of building a reality-based community in post-truth America is taking on a new urgency now that we have a fundamentalist Christian theocrat in charge of the People's House, as Trump's insurrectionists, know-nothings, election deniers, and armed and angry cult followers threaten to take over the executive branch, having already captured the judiciary. We are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die please make a tax-deductible donation at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our foundation publictruthmedia.org so that we can continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism, wrapped in the flag and carrying a Bible. And joining us now is Matthew Dalek, an historian and professor of political management at George Washington University's College of Professional Studies, the author of The Right Moment and Defenseless Under the Night. His latest book is Birch's, How the John Birch Society Radicalized the American Right. Welcome to Background Briefing, Matthew Dalek. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And over the weekend on Veterans Day, Donald Trump made a speech in which he almost it seemed like he was channeling Adolf Hitler or Mussolini in saying, well, actually, why don't we just play the clip and then we can talk about it. In honor of our great veterans on Veterans Day, we pledge to you that we will root out the communists, Marxists, fascists, and the radical left thugs that live like vermin within the confines of our country that lie and steal and cheat on elections, the threat from outside forces, 
is far less sinister, dangerous, and grave than the threat from within. And that was, of course, the clip of uh, Donald Trump over the weekend giving a Veterans Day speech on Saturday. And he actually went further, Matthew Dalek, after that. He said that. He said, the threat from outside forces is far less sinister, dangerous, and grave than the threat from within. Our threat is from within. Because if you have a capable, competent, smart, tough leader, Russia, China, North Korea, they're not going to want to play with us. Now, this is a man who also, just the other day, praised these dictators, Kim Jong-un, Putin, Xi Jinping, and, and Viktor Orban. So do we have a fascist who could be the next president? Well, uh Thanks for having me. So, a uh, fascist uh, is a that's a that's a big word. Um, I know that there are some scholars and critics who you know think it, Trump is an outright fascist. Um, I would say whatever you know one wants to call him, however one wants to think of him, uh, what we heard from him this weekend, as we've been hearing from him over many years now, is increasingly disturbing increasingly uh, radical. Trump, uh, I think, has long aspired to be some kind of dictator. Um, you know, look at his behavior in the run-up to January 6th. Look at his use of conspiracy theories to deny the reality that he lost the election. Um, and the disturbing thing about his Veterans Day speech, I think, is that it continued his pattern and it doubled down on his pattern of dehumanizing his opponents and saying, basically, these are vermin. We're going to squash them like a bug. Um, remember, he, he's invoked, wittingly or unwittingly, uh, dictators, some of the great mass murderers of the 20th century, like Stalin, when he called the press the enemy of the people during his first term. So we're not hearing anything entirely new but I do think it has become, the pitch has become uh, more radical and that he's become quicker to, to dehumanize uh, his opponents, uh, even more so now than he did, say, as president. And he used the word uh, vermin not just in his speech on Saturday, but he also used it in his Truth Social uh, post as well. So, again... That is something that Hitler referred to the Jews as vermin, etc. So it is dehumanizing. So I guess the question then becomes, Matthew Dalek, why do the press treat this guy as the leader of one of the two major parties, which he is, clearly, and that this is just normal? And, you know, the Tweedledum, Tweedledee, what the Democrats say, and then equal and opposite what the Republicans say. and But this is not equal and opposite. This is yeah. a different ball No, game. no. No, it, it is. I, I think it is. And, and I think it has been for some time. Um, you know, it has been for years now with Donald Trump. Um, you know, every other word out of his mouth is a lie or an exaggeration. Um, but, you know, the media your question, I think the media has had a very hard time still today figuring out how to cover him. And uh, I saw one headline from a, a news organization in which they said that Trump basically invoked 
Nazi language or, or, or fascist language when he used the word vermin to describe his opponent. Um, but other organizations, of course, uh, don't go there. And uh, I think that they feel, uh, my sense, uh, is that many media outlets feel torn between their desire to um, report objectively as much as humanly possible, uh, not to become partisan, but also to uh, tell people the truth as, as best as they can ascertain it. Um, the other thing is that our attention spans, famously, have become so short that it's very hard to um, it's very hard to cover Trump, right? It's very hard to, and this is not to, to absolve anyone or any reporter, but um, it's very hard to, you know, if you quote him, right, you're airing many of his falsehoods or his uh, some of his vile rhetoric. If you don't quote him, um, you know, it's harder to sort of give people a sense of uh, of what he is actually saying. So I do think, though, that the media uh, would do well to be really as aggressive as possible in uh, covering him in as honest a way as possible um, and to taking his ideas, his proposals seriously, uh, because, um, you know, that's the only way. And then the last thing I'll say is that, look, obviously, whatever the media does, um, you know, a lot of Americans don't, they're not, you know, listening to NPR, they're not reading the New York Times, you know, they're getting their news and information maybe from TikTok or from uh, Facebook. And so uh, whatever the, the mainstream media says and does, um, it's unclear how effective that's going to be at reaching people who uh, are not tuning in. Well, without belaboring the Hitler analogy, I mean, Hitler did say up front what he was going to do in his book, Mein Kampf. So Trump is saying up front now what he's going to do. He's going to crush his enemies like bugs as they, because they're vermin. And he also just recently said that he would, you know, on an interview with Latin American TV, I can't remember which outlet, maybe it was Televisa, where he said that he would use the FBI to go after his political enemies, and particularly those who became popular. So he's really clear. <laughs> I don't want any rivals. You know, I'm the dear leader, and uh, yeah. nobody competes with me. Yes, and I think I think he would like to be, he would be much more at home in an outright dictatorship, right? He would be, I mean, that's really his sweet spot. And there's a reason why he praises Kim Jong-un of North Korea or uh, Xi Jinping of uh, uh, China uh, or uh, Putin of Russia. I mean, these are uh, strong men. And, you know, he, he thinks that, that that's sort of the aspiration for him. I think the challenge uh, for him, and this is not to you know, be Pollyannish about it, but there are, you know, certain institutions in the United States that remain as battered as, as they are, these so-called democratic guardrails. They still exist. And, you know, Trump cannot, um, you know, look, uh, a Trump second term for Trump would be very alarming. At the same time, he cannot simply wave his wand and stick the FBI on people or stick the Department of Justice on people or, uh, uh, you know, or, uh, or destroy the courts, right, and get rid of the courts. You know, the system is designed to kind of thwart uh, 
some of these abuses, or at least to stymie them. And, you know, we saw that even uh, with the U.S. military, I think, uh, uh, in the run-up to and after January 6th. Trump certainly, you know, committed all sorts of, I think, abuses of power. Um, But he was not able, let's say, to use the military to uh, seize, as some of his aides like Rudy Giuliani were recommending, to seize uh, uh, the ballots and to seize uh, voting machines and and have a do-over. So, you know, maybe this is a little optimistic, but there are uh, constraints, I think, that uh, still exist. And we've seen the courts be uh, especially robust, as well as the U.S. military. But your book, uh, Matthew Dalek, Birch's, How the John Birch Society Radicalized the American Right, what it tells us about is about this organization that was based on paranoia during the Cold War that went so far as to accuse Dwight Eisenhower, President Eisenhower, of being a communist. It was all about purging the country from within because of outside Mm -hmm. Forces, and, and that's what Trump just said on Saturday. Yes. The problem is internal. We have an internal that's problem, right. and Trump is not alone. He has allies. He his protege is now the Speaker of the House. If there's an heir to the John Birch Society, it's the House Republicans Freedom Caucus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I think the the uh, what you said earlier is really important. This idea that the Birchers as Trump and the MAGA movement has done, sees the greatest enemy as within, right? It's within the United States. It's internal uh, to the country. And so, you know, Trump made it very explicit, but this is something that the Birchers said for many years, right? They said that it's really these un-American forces, these communist ideas that are dominating American institutions and American culture. And that creates a kind of uh, mindset, at least, that would lead to a civil war, right? Because if your greatest threat is internal, um, then, you know, you're going to be willing, if you believe in it, right, to take up arms to defeat it. And so I think that is one of the great perils of uh, this kind of uh, rhetoric and this kind of dehumanization of one's opponents. And look, Trump has picked up on a lot of these ideas from the Birch Society and many other movements and groups uh, on the far right over the past several decades. Well, he is channeling the Birch Society when he, on Saturday in front of the veterans, he said, we pledge to you that we will root out the communists that came first, Marxist, fascist, and the radical left thugs who live like vermin within the confines of our country that lie and steal and cheat on elections. Now, you know, he's obviously putting his stop the steal theme in there yeah. to update it a little, but that's pure John Birch Society rhetoric, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it feels very um, contemporary. And, you know, it's so interesting because, of course, there are no real communists left. Um, they're, 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 they're not really in the United States, as they once were. They're not in ago. Russia or China. And, and, and they're, not, they're not really, you know, uh, you know, the Cold War ended, right? It ended in 1989, 1990. And so, um, and yet, you know, he's picked up on this idea and, you know, look, communist, radical left, um, these are all kind of metaphors, again, for uh, uh, this, uh, this enemy that Trump sees of his opponents, right? People who 
um, you know, he thinks are out to get him, who want to kind of put him in jail, who hold of values that are at odds with many of his supporters um, and do not um, kind of comport with the idea that I think he has promoted of uh, basically a primarily white, a Christian, very business friendly United States. And I think that that has been um, one of the forces, at least animating him. And so even though the particular issues have changed, many of the underlying themes and concerns about U.S. sovereignty, again, about the enemy primarily being internal conspiracy theories and the use of conspiracy theories as weapons to mobilize a movement of people in support of a cause, uh, isolationism and a more explicit kind of racism and this sort of anti-establishment, apocalyptic, violent mode of politics. I think all those concerns are kind of swirling around uh, the MAGA movement and really animating it. And Trump uh, has uh, really uh, picked up on them. And, and, you know, we've seen, you know, what happened on January 6th. Well, his people, his campaign, they're not in any way apologetic for what he said. Stephen Chung, who's the Trump campaign spokesman, told the Washington Post, quote, those who try to make that ridiculous assertion, talking about knowledge, comparing what Trump said on Saturday with Hitler and Mussolini, those that make those ridiculous assertions are clearly snowflakes grasping for anything because they are suffering from Trump derangement syndrome and their entire existence will be crushed when President Trump returns to the White House. Their entire existence will be crushed He's just I mean, doubling look, down. Um, yeah, yeah. No, it, look, they always double down. Um, yeah, but they're doubling level, down on a, fascism. They're doubling down yeah, on yeah, on yeah. killing their enemies. Yes, yes. I mean, it, on on one level, it's uh, quite frightening because what he, what the spokesman is saying, what Trump has said, is that I'm going to eliminate. Uh, uh, people within, right? There's no such thing as uh, a rule of law or or a, a, a process, right? Democratic processes. We're just going to uh, get rid of them. We're going to destroy their very existence. But I think that what that comment also evokes is really one of the animating cores of Trump and his movement, which is this hatred of their enemies, right? They have uh, continued to kind of demonize and dehumanize their opponents. And it has been this kind of civil war through other means, right? This almost rhetorical civil war that has animated Trump and kind of kept him. And so I think the reason that you hear this kind of rhetoric, dehumanizing rhetoric, the reason that they're doubling down because is because it works for Trump politically, right? It sort of imbues his followers with this sense of us against them and this struggle to the death. And uh, Trump is very effective at it. Uh, And I'm not saying that he doesn't believe it. I think in many respects, he actually does uh, believe that these are the greatest threat and his true enemies. But I think that that is the motivation because it has been effective for him politically. And that's also why he dehumanizes uh, the uh, lawyers, the prosecutors and the uh, judges who are uh, uh, going after him in court. Well, he sure does that. You know, what is, he calls them all kinds of names. 
low-life scumbags, deranged, etc. Yeah. Uh, he has yeah. quite a vocabulary of hatred, this man. Um, <laughs> but he is the leader well of the Republican Party, and he, he, in many polls, he's ahead of uh, Joe Biden. So he could be the next president of the United States. Yeah, well, this is, uh, this is I think, what makes the moment we're in uh, feel uh, really quite fraught. Um, that the country seems to be so dyspeptic, right? So it has so soured, you know, so many Americans have soured on government and on institutions and on the ability of government to um, do right by them and improve their lives that um, they're, you know, it, it seems they've basically said that our front runner, the, you know, leading candidate uh, is someone who uses this kind of hate. Um, and even, you know, some people who uh, want to support him, maybe will vote for him, may justify it and say, hey, you know, I don't really support that kind of rhetoric, but uh, I think the economy was better under Trump. And so I'm voting, you know, for him for my pocketbook. So it's a, um, it's really quite a, and then on top of that, you've got these four criminal court cases that Trump's facing, 91 indictments. As he's uh, uh, running for president, likely Republican nominee, and so uh, it does become, I think, uh, an increasingly fraught moment where uh, it feels harder for the system to function um, in any sort of functional way, and uh, and yet, you know, uh, there is, uh, you know, we have seen, I guess, time and again that there is a kind of anti-MAGA majority. And uh, we saw that, I think, in 2018, in 2020, uh, 2022, and 2023. And so, uh, you know, certainly in all these elections, the for the most part, the election deniers, the conspiracy theorists, the really hard right uh, uh, pro-MAGA Republicans have uh, lost in, in some of the key swing states. And so, um, you know, we'll, we'll have to see what happens next year. Well, Matthew Dalek, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Matthew Dalek, who's an historian and professor of political management at George Washington University's College of Professional Studies. He's the author of The Right Moment and Defenseless Under the Night. And his latest book is Birch's, How the John Birch Society Radicalized the American Right. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the role of the mainstream media in treating Trump, who is the leader of one of America's two major parties, with the normal binary equal and opposite media convention of so-called balance. I rode a tank in a generous rank When the blitzkrieg raged and the bodies stank Pleased to meet you, hope you get my Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Will Bunch, who's an award-winning national opinion columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer, who blogs at attitude.com. That's A-T-T-Y-T-O-O-D.com. 
and he's the author of The Burn Identity, A Search for Bernie Sanders and the New American Dream, and most recently, After the Ivory Tower Falls, How College Broke the American Dream and Blew Up Our Politics and How to Fix It. And his latest articles at the Philadelphia Inquirer are U.S. 2025 Dictatorship Threat Just Got Real and As the World Burns, a Cowardly News Media Endangers U.S. Democracy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Will Bunch. Yeah, thanks, Ian. Thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. Well, thanks for joining us, Will. And on Saturday, Donald Trump gave a Veterans Day speech in which he said, we pledge to you, meaning the veterans, that we will root out the communist, Marxist, fascists, and the radical left thugs that live like vermin within the confines of our country that lie and steal and cheat on elections. And then he wanted to say they'll do anything, whether legally or illegally, to destroy America and to destroy the American dream. And then he went on to say that the threat is not from the outside because he praised all these tough leaders like Russia, China, North Korea, etc. But it will come from the inside, which we were just talking about in an early segment about the echoes of the John Birch Society now. So... How can the media continue to treat this man like a legitimate presidential candidate? He is, after all, the head of one of the two parties, the Republican Party. He's even ahead in the, in the polls, according to a recent New York Times poll. And yet, he, there he is channeling Adolf Hitler. I mean, when are they going to stop this binary convention of equal and opposite arguments that, you know, on the one yeah, hand well, and on the I, other I, hand? I mean... I mean, I've noticed in the last, I, I would say, week in particular, you know, the media and particularly the the really big players that everybody follows, like the New York Times and and the Washington Post. You know, I've I, I've noticed that they're really grappling with this, struggling with this, and they're going different routes. Um, you know, the Post, to its credit, did, did run a story over the weekend about that Veterans Day speech that you quoted that very accurately talked about the, you know, direct fascist echoes, uh, you know, using, using a word that uh, was commonly used by first Mussolini and then, and then Hitler in the 1920s and thirties uh, uh, to describe their enemies. And, you know, and, and they're trying to get this, the New York times is really struggling with this. You know, they actually, <laughs> their initial headline for the veterans day story was, Trump gives a very different kind of Veterans Day speech. Like they were, you know, they were terrified to say in the headline what he had done, you know. And, um, you know, a, a lot of these newsrooms, the Times, I think, in particular, are really just invested in, you know, this image that they're, you know, arbitrating, you know, arb you know, they're the umpires or whatever in this fight between two equal parties, you know, and, and, you know, one's on the left and one's on the right, but we're going to, you know, we're, we're going to cover it fairly and we're not going to like wait our coverage to one side or the other. And, and you know, and, and as you and, and a lot of your listeners probably know over the last, over the decades and, and accelerated in the last decade, the Republican party has become not so much a political party, but an anti-democratic movement. And, in particularly, you know, with the arrival of, of Donald Trump in 2015, you know, it's become kind of a classic strongman cult of personality. You know, I'm listening listening right now to the to the Ruth Ben Giat 
book, Strongman, and uh, it's remarkable how Trump, in every possible way, fits fits the line of, of fascist uh, type dictators that start started with Mussolini and Hitler, and and this is like something that goes against just the instincts of so many of these mainstream journalists that they feel the re- they feel the reason they've gotten to the New York Times or the Washington Post is because they had that ability to be fair, to not take sides, that that's a sign of a, you know, lesser, lesser journalist. And it, it's not a matter of taking sides. It's just a matter of being accurate. I mean, you know, the, the, you know, the link of vermin and some of these other comments that Trump has made to exactly to rhetoric that was used by Hitler isn't some kind of, um, you know, opinion writer over the top exaggeration. It's, it's historically accurate, you know, and, and they've got to come to terms with this because, you know, voters need to know, I mean, I'm not going to pretend that everybody out there is going to read, you know, that Trump is using Hitler language and immediately abandon Trump, you know, I mean, there's some voters out there who want authoritarianism, right. Um, But there are some who, who, you know, they think Biden's too old, you know, that they don't like paying, you know, a dollar more for eggs than they paid two years ago, and, you know, and and they're ready just to go back to Trump. And I think they're not aware of what Trump either what he's saying and more importantly, and, and we can get into this, but what he's doing, you know, some of I mean, it's not just his rhetoric, but I mean, he has specific plans that are much more dictatorial uh, in nature than, than what he did during his first term. Well, well, in your article at the Philadelphia Inquirer, US 2025 dictatorship threat just got real. You interview Spencer Weiss, 53-year-old electrical substation specialist uh, from upstate Pennsylvania who voted for President Biden in 2020, but he's going to vote for Donald Trump despite his qualms about the ex-president facing 91 felony counts. But he just, according to you, he just sounds tired of this chaotic time. Quoting him, the world is falling apart under Biden. So Biden, (laughs) does he think the world's going to come together under Trump? I mean, I think there are people like that. Just just to clarify quickly, uh, these were people who these were people that I interviewed, but they they were people who responded to that New York Times poll. Um, that was published, and but I I was struck by some of their comments, and that's why I that's why I use them in my opinion column to illust- to illustrate the point I was trying to make, which is that um, yeah, there's uh, you know I I think there's you know broadly speaking, I think there's two kinds of Trump voters out there, right? There there's the true believers, the people who are willing to get on a bus and go to Washington for January 6th and overturn the election, you know, and, and, and that's his core support. And that's a big group, but I, I don't even think that's the majority of people, you know, who voted for Trump in these elections or who, the people who are telling the pollsters now that they're going to vote for Trump in 2024. I, I, I think the second group of people, um, they're not, they're not the most politically involved people. You know, some of them are, what we it's a kind of, kind of a controversial term but you might call some of them low information voters just not 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 to, to deride them in any way but just cuz they have other priorities other than following political news and um you know 
I mean, the thing is, we, we live in a chaotic time, right? Uh, you know, we just, we're still like kind of recovering emotionally from the pandemic and, and what that what that did and the way that upended our lives. Uh, you know, the pandemic caused inflation and and other economic upheavals that upset some people. And, and now, now you turn on the news and, uh, you know, a lot of it is death and destruction, whether it's in the Middle East or in Ukraine. Now, now did Joe Biden or did Joe Biden's administration cause these things? Uh, no, it didn't. Um, but the funny thing is, I mean, Trump, his first term, I mean, to me, it was highly chaotic. You know, he was impeached twice, you know, for Ukraine and then for January 6th. And you had the you had the, the Mueller probe and and all these other things. But that that those didn't affect the average person. Right. The average person, you know, the the econ- the economy was stable in 2017, 2018, 2019. Uh, the foreign war situation was 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 pretty calm for whatever reason, right? And you know, a lot of voters just look at that and you know they're they're not following the ins and outs of Trump's scandals or his court cases. They just think, well, there was, you know, you know, they're they're in there and also let's not forget, they're influenced a lot of them by by the media they consume, you know, whether it's right-wing media, whether it's their crazy uncle on Facebook or whatever, you know telling them, you know, telling them that Joe Biden is old and out of touch. And, you know, it's kind of a, you know, it's kind of a macho thing. It's ageism. It's all kinds of reasons why why people kind of get a kick out of mocking Joe Biden and looking down on him and not really judging in my mind whether whether he was a better president or worse president than Donald Trump. And that's where we're at. These, you know, you're talking about millions of people who are going to show up on election day. Now, you know, there's also, I think, people that Biden can win over. I don't, I don't think it's a lost cause. I think he needs to, you know, energize, somehow reconnect. And, you know, he's he's in a bad position to do this right now, but he needs to reconnect with young people and 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 black and brown voters and some of the other people who put him over the top in 2020, because otherwise those guys like that guy in Pennsylvania who who just thinks things were less chaotic under Trump are going to are going to rule the day and in, in on November 5th 2024 if if uh things don't change so well bunch just returning to the media's role in still sticking with the binary tweedledum and tweedledee idea of if you yeah, if you you know you have to equal and opposite arguments, and then therefore you know Trump and Biden are on the same level. It's just balance. And originally, of course, this idea of balance came about because newspapers owners realized that if you skew to the Republican side, then you lose half of your readers, or if you skew to the Democratic side, you lose half of your readers, and they sort of play for the center. Well. And of course, you've written about this in your article, As the World Burns, a Cowardly News Media Endangers U.S. Democracy. First of all, just an analysis of U.S. democracy. The idea that there's a center, which is what has always been what politicians on both sides have always sort of hewed to the center, particularly after they hew to the right or the left in the primaries and they go back to the center. I don't think there's a center left in America. Maybe there's the center now, arguably, no, is in, I, I the, in, in the Democratic Party. The Republican Party is so right wing under Trump's capture that they're way out there. 
they're no longer in the center, are they? I mean, yeah, no. A lot, a lot of pe- a lot of people mocked um, Joe Manchin the other day when he said he wasn't going to run for another term, and he said he was going to be traveling around the country looking for the center. And, and, and a lot of people made the same point that you just made. You know that that you know the anti-democratic, you know, increasingly fascistic or whatever you want to call it, nature of the Republican Party has kind of destroyed the notion of a center and, you know, and and Joe Manchin doesn't see that. But yeah, you know, this, this idea of a center, uh, one thing, and, you know, I've been a journalist now for over 40 years, so I I know the culture pretty well. And I, I, I think a lot of people in the mainstream in important positions in the media, in some weird way, this idea of balance kind of morphed into this idea that people who are solidly on the left or people who are solidly on the right can't be, must be wrong, you know, that that the truth is somewhere in some kind of bipartisan center where everybody gets along. And and and, and, and on some issues, it's, it's not really like that, but you know, it, you know, it, 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 it bleeds into this, into, into the news coverage, this idea that people who are looking for the center are the most virtuous people out there. And, and, and that's just not true. I mean, who's, who's a more, who's a more virtuous politician right now than, than Bernie Sanders, for example, you know, um, you know, putting the Middle East controversy maybe aside for some people, but a man of the left who has, a lot of integrity, but there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of people uh, who are too important in the media, who, you know, who, who dismiss that, who look, who look for the center. And, you know, and, and just real quickly, because, because you mentioned the business thing, you know, right in the last five or, or 10 years, uh, the media business, you know, traditional newspaper type newsrooms uh, that are now mostly digital uh, had to, had to remake, invent, you know, had to reinvent the business to try and get digital subscribers. And so they're more concerned than ever, you know, that like an opinion writer who's too left wing or an opinion writer who's too right wing is going to cause people to cancel their digital subscriptions. I mean, trust me, that's a real, that's a real concern in a lot of newsrooms. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of news, a lot of news organizations have downgraded their opinion sections because they figured offending readers with somebody's opinion just wasn't worth it. So yeah, the problem is we need people out there pounding on pots and pans and screaming about the risk of authoritarianism in this country. So just in the last couple of minutes, though, Will Bunch, you mentioned in your article at the Philadelphia Inquirer, as the world burns a cowardly news media and dangers U.S. democracy, that political reporting is useless unless it focuses a lot less on the campaign horse race and a lot more on the consequences of victory. And the consequences of a Trump victory are just so alarming, particularly if you follow what he just said over the weekend on the Saturday speech. Uh, and what he's been saying about using the FBI to go after his enemies, and even saying going after anybody that's popular, more popular than him. So that's just completely channeling the <laughs> Kim Jong-un, uh, Xi Jinping, Putin, Orban, strongman ego. So just quickly tell us what the mainstream media could and should be doing here. Yeah, no, absolutely, because I think what some people still don't quite understand is People, people with Trump focus a lot on his rhetoric, and 
It is his rhetoric is important, and it's it's important that his rhetoric in twenty twenty three is is a lot more extreme than his rhetoric was in twenty fifteen, even though it was extreme back then. But it's worse now. But what people I think don't understand or aren't seeing is that kind of surprisingly to me in a way, but there's a lot more at work being done behind the scenes on implementing a Trump agenda, so to speak. And it's it's less an agenda of, you know, like infrastructure or, or healthcare or something like that. But it, it is an agenda that Trump is determined to put his loyalists throughout the, throughout the government um, because he realized when there were things he wanted to do at the end of his first term, uh, or maybe his only term, but at the end of his term, um, you know, when, when he wanted to overthrow Biden's election victory, for example, you know, law, there were lawyers in the Justice Department who stood up to him and threatened to resign. Uh, you know, you had generals like Mark Milley who would not do Trump's bidding, and and that prevented a coup on January 6th, 2021. Um, well, he wants to change that. And he's got, you know, he's making lists of loyalists that he can put in government jobs. He's uh, identifying and coming up with plans to, you know, gut these agencies, um, get rid of career lawyers at the Justice Department, even if, you know, they're conservatives in good standing with the Federal Society, you know, which used to be the gold standard for Republicans. Now, if they're not America first, MAGA Trumpists, they're out. I would encourage everybody who hasn't read it or who's not familiar with it to Google the phrase Project 2025. It's a blueprint that that people with the Heritage Foundation and other groups are working on essentially on behalf of the Trump effort, you know, which outlines these plans to basically, you know, they, they, they would call it killing the deep state. I would I would call it gutting constitutional governance as we know it. Just one example of that is, you know, completely reversing anything that's been accomplished on climate change and like, you know, going going whole hog on fossil fuels is is one part of the plan. So so these are the things that people, I think, aren't getting so much. It's changing a little bit. Um, it's funny, that, you know, the, the, the New York Times, uh, you know, God bless them, you know, for all their difficulties in in describing what Trump is up to and, and using the right language. Um, they do have excellent journalists who work there. They have been doing a series of stories on on what the stakes are. Um, and they broke a major news story over the weekend about immigration, where basically Trump is hoping for a renewed effort to round up undocumented people, even, even people who've been here in this country for years, people who were ensconced in neighborhoods in Los Angeles or Philadelphia or, or elsewhere, round these people up. Uh, you know, since you're talking about literally millions of people, you would see, you know, concentration camps. There's no other word for it. Again, you know, it's it's language that makes people in the mainstream media uncomfortable to, you know, to say that the candidate, you know, the likely nominee of one major party is planning concentration camps is something that, you know, a lot of squeamish editors are like, can we really say that? Well, you should say that because that's exactly what he's planning, you know, and the, and if you, if you say, well, he talked about that stuff and his, you know, in 2017, and then he didn't follow through. Well, he's putting his own people in there 
so he can follow through on these types of plans. And it would be Sinclair Lewis's it can't happen here. It it would happen here if uh, you know if, if Trump is elected on on November fifth of next year. Well, Will Bunch, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Ian, thanks so much for having me again. I appreciate it. And again, I've been speaking with Will Bunch, who's an award-winning national opinion columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer, and he blogs at attitude.com. That's spelled A-T-T-Y-T-O-O-D.com. He's the author of The Burn Identity, A Search for Bernie Sanders and the New American Dream, and most recently, After the Ivory Tower Falls, How College Broke the American Dream and Blew Up Our Politics and How to Fix It. And his latest articles at the Philadelphia Inquirer are U.S. 2025 Dictatorship Threat is Just Got Real, and As the World Burns, a Cowardly News Media Endangers U.S. Democracy. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the possibility of a coup against Vladimir Putin and how the United States should prepare for a Russian nuclear meltdown. I'm sick and tired of hearing things from uptight, short-sighted, narrow-minded hypocrites. All I want is the truth. Just give me some truth. I've had enough of reading things by neurotic, psychotic, big-headed politicians. All I want is the truth. Just give me some truth. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Bennett Ramberg, who was a foreign policy analyst at the Bureau of Politico-Military Affairs at the Department of State during the George H.W. Bush administration, and is the author of Nuclear Power Plants as Weapons for the Enemy and Unrecognized Military Peril. And he has an article at Project Syndicate, Preparing for a Russian Nuclear Meltdown. Welcome to Background Briefing, Bennett Ramberg. Well, thank you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And the premise of your article is that there are a lot of historical examples of nuclear weapons states with loose nukes as, as these states fall apart with internal divisions. And, of course, the, the most glaring example is uh, the Soviet Union. And when the Soviet Union disintegrated, then Secretary of State James Baker was uh, feared that it might become a Yugoslavia with nukes. It didn't happen, but it almost happened, right? Yeah, that was really concerning here in the United States that uh, the nuclear assets uh, in in the Soviet Union were at risk uh, with the uh, with the collapse of the of the empire. And um, uh, Baker reflected this in his memoirs, and uh, it, it it was a, a real concern. Fortunately, uh, nothing happened, despite the fact there was uh, an attempted coup against Mikhail Gorbachev where he was separated uh, from his uh, nuclear authority. Um, and there was also a uh, revolt in Azerbaijan where there was an effort by rebels to, uh, to take some tactical nuclear weapons, but the weapons were, were removed. Uh, so there was real concern at the time, but uh, fortunately in, in that particular case and other cases, frankly, in history, while there were threats against nuclear plants uh, or nuclear um, uh, weapons and in time of civil upset, uh, the, the weapons remained secure. Uh, the question that I raised in this article is if the uh, Russia should begin to, uh, that is the Putin regime, begin to cave, uh, would the weapons uh, be at risk once again? And uh, would this time be actually much more serious than in the past? Well, you point out in your article that the Wagner Group's Prigozhin, when he sent his mercenaries to Moscow, uh, on the road to Moscow, they approached the Voronezh 45 nuclear facility. What happened there? 
Well, there's uh, different uh, uh, accounts as to what happened. Uh, they approached it, but they never entered the facility. Uh, so uh, clearly, uh, no nuclear weapon was tampered with at the time. And uh, so the, the problem didn't arise. But the, the, nonetheless, the, the issue arose at that particular time. Uh, but we have a more concerning situation where, uh, because of the Ukraine war and the various pressures this, uh, that is, the Putin government is suffering, would the government actually collapse and would the weapons themselves be at risk uh, as a result of um, uh, unrest in the country? Or would Putin himself, frankly, uh, were he to see the, uh, that his reign would be going down and were he to uh, conclude that the United States was ultimately responsible, would he at the end um, turn the weapons against Europe or the United States itself? Um, this is a hypothetical. Hopefully uh, it would never happen. But my concern is the U.S. government has to prepare to uh, address this particular problem, and it's a difficult challenge, uh, to say the least. Well, we, you know, you mentioned historical analogies. There, there's some that are much more scary. Uh, for example, during the Cuba crisis, Castro was so furious when Kennedy and Khrushchev made a deal to pull out the the uh, nuclear weapons uh, that Russia had secretly deployed in uh, Cuba Castro and his forces tried to grab these nukes, and there was a shootout between the Spetsnaz, the Russians, and the Cubans. So, I mean, I don't know why anybody supports Castro, frankly, because he tried to kill us all. But at any rate, that's another matter. So, well, just as an aside, there would be an issue there, as there is uh, in, uh, concerning uh, current vulnerabilities. Could those who would capture a weapon actually be able to ignite the weapon? Would they have the codes to do so? Uh, at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis, perhaps the defenses were, were less less robust than they are today, but uh, they, they certainly are robust today, and it would take us uh, some niftiness and some authority to uh, break the codes down. Uh, but my biggest concern, frankly, is Putin himself going down, and um, my fear is, would he actually decide, well, if I'm going down, should I take others? And it's a hypothetical. Uh, we've never seen it in history. Uh, but nonetheless, it remains a concern in the current environment. Well, you mentioned uh, if you got hold of a nuke, and particularly a tactical nuke, it's not that easy to set it off because of the PALs, the permissive action links that they have. They, maybe they didn't have them back in the Cuba crisis. The Russians do have some form of permissive action links. I'm not sure how they are. The U.S. has them that are, if you tamper with them, the whole thing collapses. So... What's your sense well, of Russian yeah. pals? Well, they do have them, and it would require somebody uh, uh, in uh, in authority uh, to uh, initiate these pals. They're uh, they're uh, devices designed to prevent the weapons from going off. Uh, you have to overcome come the code, and Putin may not have total authority over the weapons. It may involve the um, ministry uh, minister of defense and the chief of staff as well. It's a little unclear who has the ultimate authority. You know, here in the United States, the authority rests with the president of the United States, which is which is a concern actually. Uh, should there be other safeguards? It's been raised uh, uh, a couple times in our history, uh, most recently, with regard to uh, the insurrection of uh, here in this uh, country during the Trump, the end of the Trump administration. And, um, uh, uh, for example, Speaker Pelosi raised the question, who has the authority over the nuclear weapons? And she approached uh, Chairman Milley to, to, uh, to uh, confirm that uh, these weapons wouldn't be utilized by, by President Trump in any way. Uh, but in this country, it centers on the President of the United States. Um, it arose, frankly, during uh, the, the Nixon era, 
as well. And uh, Secretary of Defense Schlesinger stipulated that uh, any command uh, or authority to launch weapons would have to go through the chain of command. So there is concern even in this country, frankly. Well, how does this relate uh, to the U.S. conduct of the war in Ukraine in helping the Ukrainians and not helping them enough, which has been the pattern? The U.S. has always dithered, uh, and so has NATO. After the uh, Ukrainians ask for weapons, uh, we say no, and then months and even years later we say yes, and by the time they get them, the Russians have built up formidable defenses. So I'm not entirely convinced that the U.S. is not concerned about Putin falling down and, uh, and Russia collapsing, which is, I think, why they're not wholeheartedly supporting the Ukrainians. What's your reading on that? Well, I think uh, certainly early in the in the conflict, the Ukrainian conflict, it was concerned how far should the United States go to provide uh, the Ukrainians with uh, uh, various weapon systems. And uh, we're very cautionary. And uh, I think uh, uh, acceptably so, because we didn't know how far the Russians would go. You know, throughout this, this crisis, or war rather, uh, there's been concern that uh, the Russians would uh, might actually use nuclear weapons, that is tactical nuclear weapons, uh, to frighten the Ukrainians, to force them into uh, to a settlement or to occupy the country. And uh, as time has passed, uh, the United States has increasingly provided uh, more assets to Ukraine, not as much as uh, the, certainly the Ukrainians want, uh, but uh, certainly at this point in time, we're going to be providing with aircraft. We've provided them with Abram tanks. And uh, uh, assuming the Congress goes forward and provides the, the necessary funds, we'll provide them uh, more as time passes. Uh, one, one could be critical that we should have provided more earlier, but we were very concerned about how far the Russians were going to go in response. Uh, and that is, I think, the, the, it was a cautionary note. And we were trying to to, to, to ascertain what was the proper policy in a, in a, frankly, a unique situation. We've never been in a situation like this before. Yeah, but is it is this situation we're in and the U.S. attitude to the Ukraine war, does it tie into what you're writing about in your Project Syndicate article, preparing for a Russian nuclear meltdown? Is this concern that if things really go bad for Putin, there'll be some kind of coup and in that chaos... A nuclear weapon could either go off in Ukraine or trigger World War Three. Well, this is the concern I raise in the article, and uh, you know I don't know how it's to play out. And frankly, I laid out in my piece uh, some uh, strategies the United States could apply, but I don't know what strategy would would fit. I mean, we could, we can anticipate this through uh, gaming or, or simulations. I think the President of the United States, President Biden. Uh, should participate in the simulation because things could fall apart very, very rapidly, and we have to be prepared in that event uh, to to address the issue. We can uh, reach out to uh, whoever is command and control, uh, but uh, if they're rebels, if there's Putin himself who goes uh, in, in a manner where he wants to seek his revenge, it's a very, very challenging situation, and a lot more thought has to be given to this. Now, Secretary of uh, State Blinken uh, addressed the issue in a, uh, uh, an interview on CBS uh, earlier in the year when Prigozhin was marching on Moscow, and he was asked by the CBS reporter, uh, what about the nuclear weapons? And he said, you know, we're, we're, we're working on this. But the question is, what, what are the plans, and uh, should the plans, frankly, be made public? Or should the plans be discussed more, more, more extensively as to how to address this in, in, in a broad sense? And should outsiders outside the government, that is, uh, participate in the, uh, in the consideration of alternatives? 
But does this fear that if things go bad for, as they are, and they're not going well for Russia and Ukraine, but that seems more like a stalemate now. Uh, it does. But if the Ukrainians were to make a breakthrough, and and polling in Russia is pretty shaky, it's hard to understand what's happening there, but apparently there's a great deal of, perhaps a majority of the people are not happy with this war, and understandably so, because sure. their economy is in the toilet. So does that mean, though, that because of the fear of nuclear weapons, we shouldn't, we should back off Putin? Is that no, mean? no, no? I think I think we've been able to press uh, further with uh, by providing the Ukrainians with more more equipment, uh, and I think we should we should uh, uh, you know press press the needle, so to speak, uh, to uh, to to assist the Ukrainians to see if there a, a breakthrough or a retreat by the Russians is possible or plausible. I mean, mind you, the Russian economy is suffering. Uh, Putin's popularity will, uh, at some point, begin to decline if it has not already. Uh, a number of people have vacated the country; the best and the brightest have, uh, certainly, and uh, the, the government's under 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 significant stress, no doubt. Um, and the the question I raise, uh, however, is: Could this result in a collapse, and uh, where the weapons themselves would be uh, put at risk? But. At the end of the day, this is a problem for Russia to solve. We can't do anything about loose nukes inside Russia, can we? No, that's correct. We, we can do very little. You know, in the other cases in history, there was no intervention by foreigners to try to address them, for example. The first case that I'm aware of was in French Algeria, where some uh, former military officers eyed a nuclear test uh, uh, device um, and tried thought about uh, perhaps even grabbing the device, because the issue there was whether a French Algeria should become independent, and uh, these generals opposed that. Another case was during the Cultural Revolution in China, and uh, there was fears that uh, some of the Red Guard would try to enter uh, nuclear bases and uh, acquire the, the nuclear weapons themselves, and the Chinese government, um, which fomented the Cultural Revolution, put military forces uh, to uh, prevent any entry into, into these bases. Uh, so we have you know, examples such as that. And in the case, going back to Russia itself, just in Azerbaijan, as I mentioned perhaps earlier, uh, there was an attempt by rebels to grab some tactical nuclear weapons, and uh, the Russian, uh, the Soviet military, was able to get the weapons out of the out of the country. And there was concern at the at the time that these uh, loose nukes uh, would be a problem. But fortunately, uh, the uh, impediments held. Well, Mr. Randberg, thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Bennett Ramberg, who was a foreign policy analyst in the Bureau of Politico-Military Affairs at the Department of State during the George H.W. Bush administration, and he's the author of Nuclear Power Plants as Weapons for the Enemy, an Unrecognized Military Peril, and he has an article to Project Syndicate, Preparing for a Russian Nuclear Meltdown. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. 
Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. Bye for now.